Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to find the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah this morning, it is in your Old Testament. That's the first two-thirds of your Bible. When you find the book of Isaiah, I'd like for you to turn with me, whether you have a printed copy, as I encourage you to bring to church, or a device with an app on your phone. I would like for you to find the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah and this morning for just a few moments. I'd like to share with you some encouragement from one of the most significant messianic promises in the Old Testament. When you find the book of Isaiah, I'd, I'd like for you to begin thinking with me about coming before the king. I, I've never met an earthly king before. Uh, our friends across the pond, are enamored with their royal family. I stopped worrying about that July 4th, 1776. I've never met an earthly king. I've met some famous people, just like you may have bumped into or seen or had the opportunity to get an autograph or shake the hand of a famous individual, an artist, an athlete, an actor, an actress, somebody you admire. You may have found yourself in a situation where you meet a diplomat, a, a politician. I have met several of those, but I have never met a king. Yet in the history of humans treating royalty as royalty, one of the things we find is that there is a special measure of reverence you exercise when you come before a king. There is formality, there is ceremony, there is preparation. Months ago, as we began praying about this month, we wanted to zero in on the kingship of Christ. The scripture tells us over and over that Jesus is many things. He's the Lamb of God. He's the seed of woman. He's the best and most reliable prophet. He's the great high priest. But one of the themes in scripture that reverberates around Christmas is that he is a king. And what I'm going to ask you to do this month is not only gaze upon him again, afresh, anew, but to then ask a simple question of your own heart. Am I living my life as though I live before a king? In order to do that, we need to understand who we are dealing with. Who is this king? There was a hymn writer named William Chatterton Dix. At 29 years old, he became deathly ill. He was plummeted in a deep depression, and it caused him to grow in his own Christian faith. A devout follower of Jesus at the pit of the bottom of his discouragement, brought on by the loss of his health, he began writing hymns of worship and praise. And he penned a hymn that we always sing in and around Christmas, you may recognize a few of the first lyrics. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are 
keeping. If you have that in playing in your mind, I hear it in the form of a children's choir. It's normally sung very high, much higher than my voice. And, and we know that the chorus answers the question of the verse. What child is this is answered by this This is Christ the King. The King. Yes, a baby. Yes, a remarkable human being. Yes, a servant. Yes, a prophet. Yes, a priest. Yes, one who had divine power because he in and of himself in his nature is fully man and fully God. God became flesh in Christ. But over the next few weeks, I want you to be reminded again, when we deal with the Lord, we're dealing with the king. What kind of king? Isaiah knew a world of corrupt kings. He was a prophet in the latter half of the 8th century. This would have been in the 700s. The nation of the Jews. What was known as the people of God, Israel, had long since divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. When Isaiah recounts his own vision of God, he recounts it and dates it by the death of King Uzziah in about 740 B.C. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the reason that God spoke through Isaiah is because the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel were in deep trouble. The problem was a group of people, a civilization called the Assyrians. The Assyrians ruled for a long time in the ancient world and for many, many years they had somewhat moderate kings who were not interested in military expansion. Because of that, Judah and Israel actually enjoyed a few generations of relative peace and prosperity. But then a king came to power in the Assyrian Empire named Tiglath-Pelsar III. Interesting name. I bet middle school was hard for him. And he had his sights set on dominating the world. To dominate the world, the Assyrians had to dominate Egypt. The only thing that stood between Egypt and the Assyrian Empire was the people of God, Israel and Judah. What were they going to do? There were groups in Damascus, the ancient Syrians, who made an alliance with Israel. And King Ahaz, the king of Judah at this point, had a choice to make. Would he try to fend off the Assyrians on his own? Or would he join with the hated northern kingdom Israel and form an alliance? Sadly, as is so often the case of corrupt politicians, he had two tough choices and he made neither. Rather, he decided to approach the enemy, the Assyrians, and form an alliance with them. And when he did... He betrayed any loyalty that was left in this people to the Lord God who had said, I will be your defender, I will be your protector. And Isaiah has the tough task of calling down the prophetic judgment of God on this situation. Yet in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, 
we find that in the midst of sorrow, Isaiah is prophesying that a deliverer is coming. This is what messianic prophecies do. Messianic is just the word that roots from Messiah. Messiah is the ancient word in the Hebrews that in the Hebrew that was designated for Christ. It means anointed one. In fact, the New Testament version of Messiah is rooted in the idea of the anointed chosen one of God, which in the Greek is Christ or Christos. And so when we read the passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah, it is a reference to the coming anointed one of God, the great Christ that was promised. And we find it all throughout the Old Testament, which proves that Christmas was not a reaction. Christmas wasn't a a knee-jerk act. Christmas wasn't God walking around in heaven frustrated and saying, well, maybe we ought to send Christ. Christmas was the culmination of a plan that God had in place before he made Adam and Eve. That's how big my God is. My God is so sovereign that he knew creation would cost him his son And he created us anyway. And so when we begin to unpack these messianic promises, we find ourselves to these two verses. This morning I could spend weeks in Isaiah chapter 9. You're thinking, thank you that you're not going to do that, pastor. And so I just found myself gravitating toward verses 6 and verses 7. I'd like to read the word of God to you this morning. Read along with me silently. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love the last part. This is where we're going to get to. This is the great crescendo. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What kind of king do we have? Who is this king? And the reason that this matters is because everything in your life is connected back to what you think of God. Everything in your life is connected back to your perspective of God. Uh, The great theologian and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, ultimately, there's only one thing that matters. What you think of him. I'd like to share with you what Isaiah thought of him. What kind of king is this? Well, first of all, this king is a precious gift. Are you done with your Christmas shopping? I'm I'm ahead of schedule because I don't Christmas shop. I Christmas click. Boxes are coming in left and right. The other night I sat down for dinner and the UPS guy passed me the potatoes. He is all, my dog likes him more than he likes me. I've been real busy lately. I think my dog is trying to talk his way onto the truck. He's been getting, she's been getting ignored. She's a little needy. She loves her daddy. 
I'm about done, though, and I love being able to be done. And one of the joys of Christmas shopping, if you do it correctly, is that you think of the people that you are buying for, and you think, what do they want? What, what is it that they want? There are only two kinds of people in your life. There are those that are very hard to shop for. And then there are those like me. I always keep my Amazon box full. I'll forward it to anybody. Some of you know exactly what you want. Even in my home, some of my children texted my wife and I a list. They already had the item, the link, the size ready to go. Others of them are like, oh. And that's about the extent of their use of the English language right now. I got one that talks like that so much, I just think, I hope he marries smart. How you doing? I don't even like talking to him on the phone. When we begin to think about Christmas and we think about this gift, I think what Isaiah says is important. Look at verse 6. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Gifts can't be earned. Gifts are not deserved. Though we may think we love the person, they've not done anything in exchange for the gift. Their mere presence in our life is why we buy them a gift. It is not a wage. We don't buy them a gift. If you are an employer and you award a Christmas bonus, you're not giving a wage that the employee has earned. You're saying, I appreciate you and your commitment to me, and so I am going to give you a little something to bless your family. It's a gift. And one of the things that we do when we get discouraged is we keep a real close count on what we don't have. Listen, you may have some situations in your life that are not resolved this morning. You may enter into this Christmas season with some broken relationships in your family, and you don't see a way in which they will be mended. There may be a physical need. You may have sickness in your body. You may be dealing with a financial need. And every person in the room with a pulse deals with questions they don't know the answer to. And I've always promised you that I would never in any way arrogantly assume that in a sermon I can solve all of that because I can't. The problems you came into this room with will be waiting on you when you leave that, when you leave this service. But I can promise you this, God gave you his son. God gave you his son. You did not deserve him. You could never earn him. In fact, if we were dealing with justice only, you deserve to not receive him. But God so loved the world that he gave you his son. And the reason I say that is to not belittle your struggles, but to take all of your struggles, the sum total of them, and when you compare them to what you have in Christ, it doesn't even compare. He's a precious gift. Secondly, though, he's not only a precious gift, this king is a perfect governor. You may like our governor. You may not like our governor. You may have a politician you deeply believe in. You may have one you do not like at all. I can assure you both exist in the world today. I also can promise you that even the greatest politician you've ever come in contact with has weaknesses and will land on policies that you disagree with. Look what the Bible says through the prophet Isaiah, beginning in verse 6, second phrase. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Remember what I told you? Remember that I told you Isaiah's world is falling apart politically? There are factions and distortions of the truth and alliances that are going to cost people their literal lives. You are not, and I am not, the first generation to see the world in chaos. When we sing peace on earth and goodwill toward men, we sing it not in denying what we see around us, but in recognizing that the peace on earth we're singing about can only come through the government that is on his shoulders because the government on human shoulders will never see it. There is a war happening today in Ukraine. We are seeing a greater form of totalitarianism than any generation alive have seen displaying in China. We recognize that North Korea is becoming more and more and more combative, and if the midterms proved anything, we are not a nation dealing with division. We are a divided people who have lost our way. We no longer have an identity as a country because our values are so pulled in so many different directions. And so when you find yourself dwelling on this, especially those of you who are young, those of you who want to marry and have children, those of you raising your children, if you care about them, you'll find yourself asking, what kind of world am I going to raise my children in. And I just want you to know that no minister can promise you that you're going to get to raise them in an easy world, in a world free from persecution, in a world free from pestilence or famine. The Bible doesn't promise us that, but that makes Christ so much better. A day is coming when all the government will be on his shoulders. He can never be non-elected because he is not a politician. He's a king. He's a king and appointed to rule. And the scripture says in verse 6, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is the one place I would say I'm a big government guy. You put Jesus in charge, I'm fine with him being in charge of everything else. Every other government only gets more corrupt the larger that it gets. But this government will rule and reign forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And when that kingdom is built, there will be no more want, no more fear, no more war, no more sin. And the scripture says in verse 7, the second phrase, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. This king is a perfect governor. Third this king is his people's God. I love this. In the phrase, wonderful counselor. You ever known somebody that just gives good advice? Who do you call when stuff's hit the fan? Who do you call when you don't know what to do? Don't call immature people. Don't call foolish people. For goodness sake, don't get your wisdom for life on social media. You know who you call. I don't know who you call, but you call somebody. If you don't have anybody to call, make that a New Year's resolution. Get some godly, mature men and women in your life and call them. Why? Because you and I know how limited we are, and it is a good thing to listen to people who love us enough to speak the truth of God over us. In fact, if you have any level of spiritual maturity in your life, it is probably in large part due to God placing people in you, in your life, and over you who spoke 
truth to you. And often it's pleasant, it's encouraging, it's affirming, but sometimes it is not. Now, now, I want you to get this picture. In the world, kings surround themselves with counselors. To be on the council of the king is royalty. To be in his ministry, whether it be ministry of defense or ministry of social policy, to be a member of his cabinet, to use an American Democratic Republic example. So wise men and women who rule gain counsel from counselors. That's not what the passage says. though. The passage says that this king gives counsel. That every person in this room, by the name of Jesus, can speak to the king. When you bow your head to pray in the morning, you are not speaking to baby Jesus. When you bow your head to pray in the morning, you're not speaking to a defeated, crucified peasant. You are speaking to the king. The first century believers understood this so much that the writers of the New Testament had to say, don't be scared to approach him. You can approach the throne, not the place, not the desk, not the counselor's couch, the throne of grace with confidence, which means you're speaking to a king. Listen, it's just really hard for a husband to mistreat his wife. If he's talked to the king about it. It's very hard for a woman to grow bitter against her husband if she's speaking to the king about it. Parenting is not easy, but it is really hard to do a bad job parenting if you speak to the king often. You may be a sophomore in college or a 77-year-old. Keep speaking to the king. Because this king is a counselor. He wants to guide you. He is not the author of confusion. This king is his people's guide. Number four, this king is a powerful and perpetual God. Look what the Bible says at the second half of verse 6. Everlasting father, prince of peace. If you know anything about earthly kings, they don't last forever. You and I, Saul, our neighbors across the pond, mourn the death of a queen that ruled for a tremendous period of time. The longest in the monarchy's history. And yet, she still died. Isaiah says, in the midst of fallen leaders and rising leaders, when this king comes... He will reign forever. And not only will he reign forever, he says, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So he's always going to be in charge, and he will always have sufficient power to carry out and execute the rule his reign requires. There is never a deficit in his government. And the perpetual part is so significant. In fact, when you think about what the Old Testament talked about in relationship to the king, I think about what Daniel said. 
Daniel saw him in a vision, and he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So the Ancient of Days, of course, is the Lord God, and the Son of Man is Jesus. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages shall serve him. Is that not the same picture that's painted in Revelation? When John sees the throne at the end of human history as we know it, Every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be represented. This is why we believe in missions. This is why we send people to let the world know about Christ. We are joining in the fulfilling of the consummation of a king by exposing the gospel to every tribe and every tongue and every people group. And languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If I think about his kingship. If I think about who he is, I often think about my table of contents in my Bible. I think about how it speaks to us in so many powerful ways. I think about how in Genesis, he's the seed of woman and the offering of Abraham. He's called the tribe of Judah. In Numbers, the scripture says that he's the star of Jacob. In Deuteronomy, he's the greater prophet than Moses. In 2 Samuel, he's the son of David, David, who will be a better David and who will rule forever. In Psalms, he's the Lord's anointed one. He's the righteous sufferer. He's the king priest from the order of Melchizedek. In Isaiah, he's the virgin conceived Emmanuel. And in Micah, he's the babe born in Bethlehem. Every promise, and there are hundreds of them, came true that night. Not to usher in an insignificant baby, but for the coronation of the birth of a king. This is who we serve. I cannot stress this enough. When your life is faced with challenges you don't understand, very quickly your perspective, your perception of the greatness of God will determine your values and your decision making. If your faith is in the Christian bubble you think Jesus is creating around you, brother or sister, when that bubble is popped, your faith will be bankrupt. If your faith is in the faith of others around you, when they fall, your faith will falter. But if your faith is in a king who is perpetually a God who reigns and rules, then though the earth may tremble and the heavens may shake, he does not move. He can exalt me or allow me to suffer. He can kill me or give me breath, but he does not move. And when he does not move, then my heart has something or someone upon which to build my life. And when my life is on the rock, then I'm more prepared to live before a king. I, I just got a few more. Not only is he a perpetual and powerful king, this king is a peace giver. I love how it says it in verse 6. He says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Kings are often measured by what they conquer. But when you conquer everything, then the only thing you have to give out is peace. You see, there's only one way for a king to have peace eternally. It's for him to be large and in charge. You know, in heaven, there'll be total peace. There'll never be a broken relationship. There'll never be a tear shed there'll never be a war there'll never be acts of violence there'll be total peace 
peace is rooted in the history of God's people all the way back in the Old Testament when we think about shalom, peace, be with you. It's always remarkable to me to come in contact with a sister in the faith or a man in the faith who operates with the peace of God. And that peace, of course, is given to us by him. I'm going to close with this one. This king comes with a passionate guarantee. Don't you get tired of guarantees? Think about all the guarantees you're seeing this Christmas season. Here's just a few examples. 100% satisfaction. Satisfy who? Lifetime guarantee. I had to learn a few years ago, it's the lifetime of the product, which is one day before it breaks. Money back guarantee. A 30-day guarantee. Try before you buy guarantee. Have it now, pay for it later. And then the lowest price guarantee. I've been thinking a lot about guarantees. I'm in the market for a, a new pair of duck waders. If you want to ruin a duck hunt, let one of them leak. Years ago, when we were in our original building, the original building we call the chapel, it was one of those big baptismal pools in the back, you know, where the glass showed the water level. And the bigger you were, the higher that water went up. So what I would do is I would throw on a pair of waders over my suit pants. This is back when I wore suits and ties. If you see me in a suit and tie now, you're with Jesus. don't want to see pastor come over, especially on his day off with a tie on. You're like, I'm going to get better. <laughs> when we first got here, a dear friend of mine had a pair of waders. I said, can I borrow those for my very first baptism? He said, yes. I slid the waders on very quickly backstage, tucked my tie in him, went out there, and a warm sensation ran down my leg. <laughs> Thank goodness I had on a dark suit because I preached the whole message wet from the waist down. I called my friend. I said, your, your waiter's leak. He said, I meant to tell you that. <laughs> so when I returned them, they had a few more holes in them. And as I've been studying this idea of investing in a new pair of duck waiters, it's really not about the waiters. It's all made in China. It's the guarantee that the company will fix them when I poke a hole in them, and I will poke a hole in them. I can break anything, and I can spill peanut butter. I will poke a hole in them. So I've been reading up on these guarantees, and you know even the best guarantee, they pay some really smart lawyers to have the loopholes they need to protect their business because the truth is anything made by man can be broken, and if you want to know, give it to me. I love how this passage ends, though. This is what he says. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word zeal comes from a Hebrew word that relates back to the word jealousy. Now, when we think jealousy, we think of the negative connotation, and the Bible speaks against that. But actually, God is jealous in a righteous way. He's jealous for his glory. He will not share it. He's also jealous for redemption 
He longs for people to know him. And when you're God, being jealous is not sinful because there is no greater object to which glory can be bestowed upon. There is no greater being. There's no greater person or purpose. And so the zeal of Christmas, it's not that we were just in need and we pleaded our case. It's that God in his jealousy for his glory said, I will accomplish my purposes. And that gives me such great hope that it's not in me. That my faith is not in my ability to perform or even my own ability to believe. It is in the zeal of God. And nobody makes a guarantee like God. Nobody does. And you know what you want if somebody says they're going to guarantee something, you want them to deliver. If you deliver on the first promise you make me, I'm liable to believe you on the second one. If you deliver on the second promise you make me, I'll believe even more on the third one. Well, the first promise, he's already delivered. In fact, Mary delivered him. So if he said he was coming and he did come, if he said he would die and he did die, and if he said he would rise again and he did rise again, I can believe he's coming back. And when he comes back, he won't land in a manger. He'll land in Jerusalem. Not a baby boy, but a king. Come before the king this Christmas. Renew your perspective of his greatness. It doesn't make any difference to me whether you're managing a business, teaching a lesson plan, preparing a meal, or practicing free throws. Live your life before the king. And when you do, you'll find as your faith grows, so too does the marrying of your heart to his agenda, which is to bring others before the king. This morning, we have some special business to address and to take care of as a church. I'm going to pray for us. When I say amen, guests, you're free to leave. Members, would love for you to stay for a time of business. We have two wonderful issues to address and one serious one, a difficult one. It is so tender and so difficult that any of you that have children in the room with you this morning, we've made special arrangements for you. If you have a fifth grader or younger in the room, during the transition of the room, our children's ministry is ready to receive them right by the desk. A quick sign in. We will hold them for a few minutes as we have a very brief business session as a church. Again, to approve next year's budget, to talk about leaders, but then to address an issue that has come up. And I want to do that with you guests. Normally, every Sunday, I'll be out in the concourse meeting you. I cannot do that today, but our Connections Pastor Jarrett is out there. He would love to interact with you and talk with you as you make your way out and off of our campus. And next week and the weeks to follow, myself and our pastors will be glad to interact with you as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity this morning to be reminded of the kind of king that you are. Lord, I pray now as we leave to go our separate ways, that we would live our life before the King and that we would honor you in what we do and what we say. And Father, even now as we prepare as a church to navigate situations that have come upon us, we pray your grace and your blessings. Thank you for every guest who's joined us here today. Lord, we pray your blessings on the rest of our week. And for that soul that needs encouragement, help them to know that 
right this minute, our prayer room is open. Our counselors are there, and they would be more than happy to pray with any person under my voice about any decision that they have. Father, thank you for every person that's worshiped with us online and those that have joined us live. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.